Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for our mothers. Thank you for their love and their support, their encouragement, and their servants' hearts, their sacrificial love so much for us. I pray that you would bless them and just lavishly pour out your grace upon them. We love them so much. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mom, for being who you are. Um, Boy, we have had a couple of uh, amazing weekends, haven't we? Uh, Once upon an eternity, and then uh, that seems so long ago now. Uh, And then the ranch, you know, the the mountaintop experience. And uh, I think I'm I'm being punished for what I said to Randy Roberts when I introduced him um, about the Lakers. (laughs) So if you all want to take me up on the hill and sacrifice me, they may be able to pull it off afterwards, but... I actually bumped into him Wednesday uh, at lunch. I was at a place to get some lunch, and he was there right behind me. And, I, and the Lakers had only lost one game at that point, and I said, I think uh, I'm being punished for what I said to you on that day. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, anyways, if, <laughs> it will take a miracle now to win this series, but uh, I don't want to bring too much of the sports in here, but that's part of my world. So... <laughs> um, you know, God is good. And all the time. And on Easter, now see, I didn't really take advantage of this on Easter. I usually like to say, He is risen. And then the congregation says, let's see if you remember. Okay, some of you remember. So now I want us to say it like a congregation who is here because Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, so He is risen. Okay, half of you got it. It's he is risen indeed. Okay? Let's try it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. See, we got to say that like my wife tells me from the heart. We, We can't, you know, we're talking about the resurrected Lord. The one who rules. The one who reigns. The one who conquered death. So we don't just say it like we're giving an answer to a test. We say it because he's our life and our meaning. Amen? He is everything. That's why we're here. That's why we have life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, probably one of my favorite sermons was given back in the 70s. And when I was studying theology at La Sierra, my brother-in-law says, Hey, hey, have you heard this sermon? And I hadn't heard it. And some of you, I'm sure, have heard it at some point. It's by Tony Campolo. And it's called, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. And my, my brother-in-law, to show you how long ago this was, he says, I'll get you the cassette. Some of you know what that is, right? Some of you have heard about cassettes. But so he gave me this cassette, and I remember hearing Tony Campolo, this Italian, talk about this sermon that he heard. Now, Tony Campolo, if you haven't heard this, it's a great story. He, he talks about how on Easter weekend they have a preach-off in his church. Now, he grew up in West Philadelphia, and he says, I went to this, it was, a, it was a black church, and boy, do they know how to celebrate, and do they know how to preach. And so he, he says, there we were, and I got up there, it was my turn to preach, and I got up there, and man, he says, I was so good. <laughs> he was so good, you know, I just want to take notes on myself. <laughs> he says, I got up there, and he says, the women were going well, and the deacons were saying, preach, brother, and it was just going off, and the place was just going nuts. And I sat down next to the senior pastor of the church, and I sat down, and I said, beat that. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he put his, he said, he put his hand on my leg, and he said, son, 
You just watch. (laughs) And he said he got up there with the simplest statement. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He said he worked that for an hour and a half. And he said by the time he was done, I was exhausted. And the place was blowing up. But that was it. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let me just share with you some of that so you can experience. He said he just started. It's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying, but Sunday was coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding and Peter's denying that he knows the Lord, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel, silent as a lamb before the slaughter, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is beaten, mocked, spit upon, but Sunday was coming. It's Friday. Those Roman soldiers are flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bones and glass and metal, tearing at his flesh, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and the Son of Man stands firm as they press the crown of thorns down into his brow, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See him walking to Calvary, the blood dripping from his body. See the cross crashing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and hands of my Lord. Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody and dying. It's Friday. The sky grows dark and the earth begins to tremble. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Holy God, who will not abide with sin, pours out his wrath on that perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a horrible cry. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. And at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple that separates sinful man from holy God was torn from top to bottom because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping and hell is parting, but that's because it's Friday. And they don't know it, but Sunday's coming. Now it's Sunday. And just about dawn on that first day of the week, There was a great earthquake, but that wasn't the only thing that was shaking because now it's Sunday and the angel of the Lord is coming down out of heaven and rolling the stone away from the door of the tomb. Yes, it's Sunday and the angel of the Lord is sitting on that stone and the guards posted at the tomb to keep the body from disappearing were shaking in their boots because it's Sunday. And the lamb that was silent before the slaughter is now the resurrected lion from the tribe of Judah. For he is not here, the angel says. He is risen indeed. It's Sunday. And the crucified and resurrected Christ has defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. It's Sunday, and now everything has changed. It's the age of grace. God's grace poured out on all who would look to that crucified lamb of Calvary. Grace freely given to all who would believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, was buried, and rose again, all because it's Sunday. And he says the preacher went on and on and just kept building and building until he says finally it just got to this frenzy where the preacher just said, It's Friday! And all the people, he said, just screamed back, But Sundays are coming! And the place just lit up. And Tony knew. He had taken a licking. (laughs) 
Yes, indeed. It was Friday, and Sunday came. But that was Sunday, and Monday was coming. Jesus rose from the dead that glorious Sunday, but we still wake up the next morning, Monday morning. Alarm clock goes off. The pressures of the week start to hit us. The busyness of life starts to hit us. Yes, Sunday came, but so did Monday. And what do we do now? What do we do now? Last week was an incredible week. Last weekend we were coming off the royal wedding, right? The royal wedding that so many people were were so excited about. Osama bin Laden was told that he'd been killed. Gas prices going up and down. Japan still trying to deal with the aftermath. What do you do after Jesus has risen from the dead? How does he fit in? One of my favorite authors and speakers, Barbara Brown Taylor, wrote in her book, The Preaching Life. She tells a, an experience she had that I want to share with you. She said, two summers ago, I traveled northeastern Turkey for a walk in the Kashkar Mountains, a stretch of land between the Black and Caspian Seas where the kingdom of Georgia flourished during the 11th and 12th centuries. During its brief ascendance in this part of the world, Georgia was kind of, a, kind of a Camelot, a Christian kingdom in which strong and benevolent rulers carved a culture out of the wilderness and defended it from its enemies. They imported Byzantine artists from Constantinople to adorn their public buildings and built an economy that proposed all their subjects, prospered all their subjects. 200 years later, it was all gone, torn to pieces by neighboring tribes, Now it is a wilderness, again, although a beautiful one, a kingdom of mountains, tall pines, and rushing streams, populated only by the handful of people who have found flat places to farm. One afternoon in the middle of nowhere, a guide led a group of trekkers up a dirt road toward a small settlement hidden behind some trees. He turned a bend, and the outline of a ruined cathedral appeared, a huge gray stone church with a central dome that dominated the countryside. Grass grew between what was left of the roof tiles and the facade was crumbling. But even in shambles, it spoke to us. The whole group fell silent before it, looking around for permission to enter. But no permission was necessary. It was a hole, a shell. No living thing remained inside and we were free to explore. Arriving at the main portal, I stepped through and was swallowed up by the sheer size of the space inside. Very little of the roof had survived, but the massive walls still held plaster of frescoes with the shadows of biblical scenes on them. There were lambs of God carved on the stone capitals and medieval saints with their faces chipped away. Some of the best stones had been plundered for other purposes, but those that remained testified to the care and expense that had been lavished on this house of God. Poking around... I found evidence of campfires in one side chapel. The other had been turned into a garbage dump where rats prowled for scraps. From the transept, I heard the sound of children and returned to find them playing soccer on the green lawn that covered the floor of the central central nave, while a couple of sheep grazed under the apse. In the dome just above it, it was still possible to see one outstretched arm of the panto crater who had presided over the Eucharist. The rest of him had flaked away. Sitting down under what was left of his embrace, I surveyed the ruins of his church. 
It was one thing to talk about the post-Christian era and quite another to walk around inside it. Christianity died in Turkey. The land that gave birth to Paul and that he found so fertile for the sowing of his gospel. The land of Ephesus and Galatia and Coloss and Nicaea. The last, American bapti- the last Arminian baptisms were recorded as late as the 1890s. But today, the Christian population of Turkey has less than 1% of the total. Churches that were the jewels of Byzantine Christendom have been stripped of their altars, fonts, and crosses. Many have been turned into mosques, while others are open to tourists as museums, and still others have been left to rot. Looking around that magnificent Georgian cathedral that had been abandoned for almost a thousand years, I imagined my own parish in its place. The beautiful wooden rafters rotted out and the ceiling collapsed, shards of stained glass hanging from the window panes. The carved stone altar removed to some museum along with the processional cross, vestiges of an ancient faith no longer practiced in the land. And then listen to what she says. Such a thing is not impossible. That is what I learned in that ruin on the hillside. God has given us good news in human form and has even given us the grace to proclaim it. But part of our terrible freedom is the freedom to lose our voices, to forget where we were going and why. While that knowledge does not yet strike me as prophetic, it does keep me from taking both my own ministry and the ministry of the whole church for granted. If we do not attend to God's presence in our midst and bring all our best gifts to serving that presence in the world, we may find ourselves selling tickets to a museum. Friday, Sunday's coming, but what about Monday? He's risen. He's risen indeed. But what does Christ, our Lord, our risen Lord, ask us to do now that he is risen? I think it's very, very simple, and yet it's very difficult at times. Let me just unpack this for a minute. I want you to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to put it on the screen behind me as well. But in Luke chapter 22... The disciples were doing something that they seemed to do quite often. They were arguing. You ever see disciples argue? Sure you do. We're all disciples, and we argue from time to time. The Bible says they were in a dispute. That's not saying that they had a conversation in which they were disagreeing on an item. They were disputing. They were in a fight. They were arguing. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 28, Luke writes this, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be what? The greatest. You know, it's funny how we don't grow up sometimes. You know, who's the greatest? Who's the one of most prestige? Who's the one who has the the biggest title? Who's the one who is the greatest? And it wasn't just like in this life, but in the kingdom of God. Who is the greatest? Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? And then there's my favorite word. But I... Am among you as the one who serves. Now that sounds like a simple statement. Like Jesus saying, Yeah, 
I came to serve, not to be served. I'm among you as the one who serves. But you see, Jesus is among us as the one who serves. I was talking with a bunch of sixth graders at a camp a couple weeks ago, just giving a little worship talk. And I was asking, you know, where, where can you see Jesus today? You know, oftentimes we would say, well, if we could just see Jesus, if he could be in front of me, then, then I would believe. But Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. You want to see the spirit of Jesus alive in the 21st century? You find the people who are serving. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. I am among you as the one who serves. John Ortberg, in his book uh, that he wrote called An Ordinary Day with Jesus, he actually talks about Tony Campolo's wife. Her name is Peggy. He says, author and preacher Tony Campolo said that when his wife Peggy was at home full-time with her children and someone would ask, and what is it that you do, my dear? You you ever get in those conversations? What is it that you do? She would answer this way. I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And then she would ask, and what do you do? Isn't that great? Living for the kingdom of God, discipling her children, discipling the people around her, giving her life to that. Positions come and go, but serving in the kingdom has eternal value. Someone recently shared with me, if you were to take the 12 steps and turn them around to be about ourselves, this is what it would sound like. And it's kind of scary when you actually listen to them because you'll find some of yourself in here. I know I find some of myself in here. Listen to this. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over nothing that we could manage our lives perfectly and those of anyone else who would allow us to. Step two, we came to believe that there was no power greater than ourselves and the rest of the world was insane. Step three, made a decision to have our loved ones and friends turn their will and their lives over to our care, even though they couldn't understand us. Step four, made a searching moral and immoral inventory of everyone we knew. Step five, we admitted to the whole world the exact nature of everyone else's wrongs. Step five, we're entirely ready to make the others straighten up and fly right. Step seven, demanded others to either shape up or ship out. Step eight, made a list of all persons who had harmed us and became willing to go to any length to get even with them all. Step nine, got direct revenge on such people whenever possible except when to do so would cost us our lives or at the very least a jail sentence. Step 10, continued to take the inventory of others and when they were wrong, promptly and repeatedly told them about it. Step 11, sought through complaining and nagging to improve our relations with others as we couldn't understand them, asking only that they knuckle under and do it our way. And finally, step 12, having had a complete physical, emotional, and spiritual breakdown as a result of these steps, we tried to blame it on others and get sympathy and pity in all of our affairs. Now that's just the epitome of narcissism, isn't it? Of just, it's all about me. But yet, I'm not asking for hands, but did you see yourself in there every once in a while? I will confess, 
I did. Every once in a while, you know, that ego kind of surfaces. And it's all about defending your personal empire. And sometimes we're so good at it, good at it we don't even realize it. But through the Spirit, we're convicted that, you know, it's not about my empire. It's about the kingdom of God. And so I become a servant. I become a servant. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus as he serves his disciples. It says in verse 1, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave his world and return to his Father. He now showed the disciples the full extent of, of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already enticed Judas, son of Simon, him, Simon um, Iscariot, to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around them. At that point, the scripture says, he now showed the disciples the full extent of his love. He got up from the table, he took a towel, and he washed their feet. He served. The cross of Jesus shows us that he's all about serving. And the love of Christ always fleshes itself out in our lives by serving. Now, this is an amazing church. I just have to say that. I have to say, I mean, just, just look what happened a couple of weeks ago on Once Upon a People serving like crazy to bless this church family and to bless the community and to testify of God's great love. This is a church that knows how to, to do things, right? You know that. You've experienced that. And that's wonderful, and that is a huge blessing. But, but really, when the rubber meets the road, the hard part comes is that when you're at home or you're at work or you're at school or you're just at a convenience store and somebody does something to rub you the wrong way, will I serve? Will, will I do something to be kind rather than defending my way and getting what I think I deserve? When things are heated and it's hard to say I'm sorry, will I humble myself? And allow Christ to be among us as the one who serves and say, I'm sorry. Will I do the things that I don't like to do because somebody else may not be doing them and I'm, and I'm just waiting for somebody else to do them? Will I serve? That's where it really hurts the most, it seems. Jesus took the towel and he served. Paul shows us the mind of Christ in Philippians 2 when he says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made into the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Who was Jesus? Who was our resurrected Lord? He was a servant. And that's the mark that shows up on his followers. They're servants. No matter how easy the task is or how difficult the task is or how unnoticed the task goes, you just serve because the Spirit of Christ leads us to serve. Remember John 15? We abide in Christ and we love one another and we bear witness that we've been with him. As we abide in Christ, 
we serve out of love. And it's service that's not necessarily convenient. It usually is inconvenient. Serving. I want to share one last, script, last scripture with you. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says it so beautifully. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul tells us that because Christ is risen, He has called us all into this grace that brings the body of Christ into this wonderful serving organism that just is always looking out for the needs of others. Not protecting my own needs, but looking to serve the needs of others in the church and outside of the church. And as he has descended, he ascended, and the Spirit has come down to all of us to bring the Spirit of Christ into our lives so that people will see Jesus among us as the one who serves. I want to share with you in closing a video that I stumbled upon years ago that is so simple, but yet it shows such the beauty of the Spirit of Christ in people. And maybe a a situation that you might might not think of. And so let's show that video at this time. The best tradition in college sports, dotting the I in script Ohio would get some votes. 77,000 Badger-mad fans at Camp Randall Stadium are partial to the fifth quarter. Cal students, well, they delight in stealing the Stanford tree. At Duke, they sleep in Krzyzewskiville. Florida students, gator clap. Georgia breeds Uggas. You can argue for hours about which tradition is tops, but really, why bother? Because any and all are just second best behind... Picking up Butch, Chris Conley visits the small school with a huge heart. Come on, guys. <laughs> I'm just a fan and I love you guys. At Middlebury College in Vermont, the sights of a New England autumn morning include brittle sunlight across a football field. And the man whose unsinkable spirit has made him a part of a four-decade tradition. Fifty-seven-year-old Richard Butch Varno has cerebral palsy. It confines him to a wheelchair 
and makes it impossible for him to care for himself. So before every football and men's basketball game at Middlebury, two or three athletes get in a car and head for the place just down the hill from North Pleasant Street, where Butch is waiting for them. Hey, guys. Hey, Butch. How's it going? Great. What's up, Butch? We're ready to go, guys. Let's yeah, do it. One, two, three. Uh -oh. And as Middlebury athletes have done for more than 40 years, yeah, Butch. they pick up Butch. Oh, uh, man. The captain. Big guy, 6'5", 240, looks me in the eye and he's like, John, don't forget Butchie. So uh, right from that moment, I didn't really fully comprehend like the significance of what we were doing until like I got that look from him. Let's do it, guys. They drive Butch to the game. I'm here, guys. Here you are. After he's wheeled into Middlebury's alumni stadium, Butch begins the happiest hours of his entire week. I ask you to now please rise as we honor America with the playing of our national anthem. Let's go, Hayden! Fast! Give it to him. Touchdown! Yeah. Touchdown! Yes! Hey, you called it, man! You called it! Yeah. <laughs> you just know that's where he wants to be. It's his favorite place in the world to be at an athletic event, to be cheering his team. And away go, guys! Have you been a sports fan all your life, Butch? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, because I, I honestly wanted to play, and that's what cerebral palsy does. It takes away what you want to do with your life. The picking up Butch tradition started in 1960, when Butch and his grandmother were struggling to return from a football game during a blizzard. Roger Ralph, then a sophomore at Middlebury, happened to be driving by picked them up and drove them home. I suspect there's never been a Middlebury student who has crossed Butch's porch, gone into Butch's living room, taken him out of his wheelchair or helped him into his wheelchair that Butch hasn't been delighted to see. He makes you feel like a million bucks. Generations of athletes at Middlebury have picked up Butch. Basketball players before football games, football players before basketball games. It's become a tradition passed down from upperclassmen to freshmen. You just tell him where he lives, go pick him up, and uh, make sure you got plenty of space in the car. It's a good experience, you know, he talks a lot. Don't be nervous, he's a good guy, he's easy to talk to. Just sit there and let him know you're there for him. For many of our students who come from very, very affluent backgrounds, to see Butch in his environment, to have the opportunity to pick him up, is a life lesson they can never learn in a classroom. Middlebury students have lifted up Butch in other ways as well. After years of tutoring from student athletes like pole vaulter Sarah Smith, the man once spurned by the state school system, earned his high school equivalency diploma by passing the GED test. He was very emotional that day. It was a very emotional day for him, but I think it was one of his proudest moments, one of his greatest achievements of his life. Let's throw the ball, guys! On the football field, Butch hopes for great achievements from his team. Yeah, here we go! Shouting encouragement as Middlebury lines up to attempt a last-second field goal that would beat Colby Collins. Get up there! Yes! Yes! No! <laughs> but defeat never leaves him down for long. It's a tough loss, huh? Yeah, you're okay. He's quick to offer words of consolation as his team leaves the field. 
tough one today, huh? Yeah, yeah, but I'm proud of you. For as Butch supports his beloved players, they support him and help him do extraordinary things. There you go, Butch. There you go. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I'm not going to let you go, Butch. Oh. I'm sorry, I'm slow, guys. You walk every day, so you know what it feels like. You run, you run, you jump. Well, I can't do that unless I have help. And I had help from three great football players who did the job. There you go. Yeah, This is what it's all about, guys. Oh, I'm... Yeah. Over 40 years, from the most experienced coach to the youngest freshman picking him up for the first time, Butch Varno has brightened scores of lives. And as Butch has spent his life unashamedly loving the people of Middlebury College, the people of Middlebury have loved him right back. You are a special friend to all of us. We love you, man. I'm sure that there are many, many stories like this of, on other campuses where students are working with the less privileged but this has gone on for 40 years i think it speaks volumes of who butch varno is and what his relationship with our institution has meant for so many years mostly being involved with the kids it takes so much pressure off you they're keeping me sane man they're keeping me together they're holding me together and that's the most important thing With the continued support of Middlebury student-athletes, Butch plans to audit a course at the college this year on American Presidents. He's currently into basketball season with the freshman football players in charge of picking him up for the games. During the summer stretch when school's out, which he says is a very miserable time, Butch favors watching Red Sox games on TV, which doesn't always help. <laughs> yes, yes. He has risen. Sunday has come, but Monday is coming. And royal weddings will come and go. Osama bin Laden's will come and go and probably get worse. Natural disasters will happen. Gas prices will go up and down and up again. But nothing, nothing will stop the reign of God through His Spirit in the lives of people who live among the world as the one who serves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for serving the world, for serving your Father with such love that you gave your life away for us. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be let loose in our lives so that your kingdom of love and compassion and mercy and serving will rule our lives so that there is always less of us and more of you. May we be, may we be like those athletes who for 40 years, over 40 years, are faithful to serving, to caring, and loving. We love you, Lord.